Welcome to Jack Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak, Assistant Professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and your host of Jack Chats. The purpose of today's event is to learn a little bit more about the recently published manuscript entitled Outcomes of Embedded Athletic Training Services within the United States Air Force Basic Military Training. Today, I am joined by one of the authors of the manuscript, Dr. Reed Fisher, an associate professor from the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, and also one of the original athletic trainers who was working with this program, Mr. Jared Springens. Thank you so much for joining me, Reed and Jared. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So first of all, can you guys give me a little bit of overview of what, before this program was initiated, what was the standard of medical care for Air Force basic military training? So they bring uh, 35 to 40,000 individuals, uh, enlisted individuals, through the, the, the Lackland location and uh, split those up into housing complexes of um, so about 7,000 people a year. So at any given time, there's about 900 folks within any given one of these complexes. Uh, the standard of care really is that they have a centrally located uh, clinic where their physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs uh, kind of feed and, and manage uh, any kind of sniffs, complaints of pain, sickness, whatever. Uh, if an if individual trainee says they've got a problem, then their training instructor will guide them towards that centrally located place. Um, uh, these are gen med practitioners. And so the MSK component of this tended to be a little bit nonspecific. And if it was an injury, they'd be given a waiver that set them to rest and recover for the most part. Like, up to two weeks worth of sitting and waiting for things to recover. And those individuals, while everybody else was doing their physical training, would sit in the middle of the training pad, reading and studying from their manuals. So uh, there was, from the first time we stepped out to kind of see how that that, that initial, uh, their current world existed, we saw that there's just room for improvement in a half a dozen different locations. So uh, we sought to, uh, Kind of shorten the, shorten, lower the barrier to, to medical care on the MSK level and then certainly overhaul uh, what happened once that diagnosis came about. So give us some background into how did this idea develop? How did you get on board? <laughs> Uh, so my colleague, uh, Dr. Chandra Sparza with me at Incarnate Word, uh, we received a phone call from one of the leads of preventive medicine at Lackland, and he, uh, Dr. Leo Cropper, he uh, he calls us up and goes, I just came back from a meeting of the minds of top DOD folks, and they say that athletic trainers are cool people, and they seem to help. So I don't really know what you do, but you're the only education program in San Antonio, so we should chat. Uh, come on out and see what we do. And so we did. Uh, that first day, uh, Chandra and I went out and, with Leo and saw that while they were out doing PT and you watch 150 individuals uh, with all different backgrounds in life and experiences and ages and, and training capacities and physical capacities running laps on a concrete pad. And you're like, oh, wow. And some of those people looked like they were actively trying to punish Mother Earth. And 
wow, you could hear them from 75 yards away stomping on the ground. You're like, okay, so I don't know how much of your world, because I don't know a lot about it at this point, uh, that we can impact. But there's within running alone, yes, there's things that we can probably do. And so uh, we, we started from there. We proposed it originally as a business uh, plan of like an eight-week trial set. And uh, we tried to work it through that route. And that didn't work. And so we ended up going through a grant and got um, CDMRP, Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program, just shy of a million dollars to to host, uh, build a new clinic and house it within one of these squadrons. Uh, and so we crafted that clinic and hired two athletic trainers. Uh, Jared and Art Gonzalez were, were our two. And uh, they're both alum from us. So we knew them well. We worked well with them. And uh, it, it was a three-year project of just process improvement. Like we had no idea how or what was needed really. So we'd step in the door and just start seeing patients and building as we went. So, Jared, what did it look like in those early days? What were you doing? I mean, we uh, we first started by just going out to PT and you know, we're watching people sit on their duffs during PT because they're on a waiver. And I'm like, well, what can we do to get you off of this waiver? So we started with, you know, bringing them in the clinic and, and coming up with a, a plan of action, a rehab plan, a treatment plan to, to get them back off of the waiver so that they can continue training. And then we had to, uh, I think the first part was we really had to kind of figure out the time frame. So Art and myself had to figure out, okay, how long can somebody be on a waiver? How long can they be on restrictions? What happens to them if we don't get them off of this waiver? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was is developing a clinic in a new space. So we would start our day out at PT in the morning and we would provide an alternate cardio session for those individuals that were on a waiver and couldn't do the running because they had hurt themselves while trying to punish Mother Earth, as Dr. Fisher put it. And um, so we would have that program for, for the duration of PT. And then we'd go into the clinic. And I think the biggest piece in the early days was getting people to to trust us and to trust our process and to come into the clinic. That really um, brings me to my next question is how much educating people on what athletic trainers actually do did you have to do? So, can, Reed, can you take that from an upper admin military leadership role? Sure. And it blends, it blends a lot between us because, uh, to start with, we were very blessed when we, when we were trying to craft this, uh, there was a, so there's an incident in 2014 where, uh, the Air Force lost a trainee to ECAST to sickle cell crisis. And from that, they responded by also saying we want to, they acknowledged at that point that they wanted to bring up a sports medicine model of care. And they brought in, uh, Nathaniel Nye, who's a physician. Uh, and a uniformed physician within the institution, within the Air Force. And so he was kind of birthing, creating, crafting a sports medicine model separate from us in our grant. And then we married together and we nested under him. So Art and Jared had a sports med trained doc, which was unique all around. So it was a, in terms of how you educate, it was hugely helpful to have our lead sports med physician be a sports med physician. Uh, and so his guidance was, was phenomenal. And then, um, beyond that, the education is, is constant. Uh, they cycle out every two years. 
we get new leadership, you build support with one, and then they go and take their next duty station. And uh, for every one of these squadrons that we have, you've got 80 military training instructors floating around, and they're cycling all on different levels, and they're in charge of 50 trainees at a time. And so as soon as you swap one out with a new person who hasn't ever connected with athletic training, then bam, all of a sudden you're not getting referrals like you used to, and you've got loss in terms of that. So we have had to say, how do we approach this? Um, and it gets a little bit, we got questions coming a little bit later talking about kind of how it's adapted in the future, but that uh, this, this has led to where we've sought to integrate ourselves within the training pipelines that the training instructors have. So we now for every time they bring in groups of 12, uh, military training instructors to the schoolhouse to teach them how to do their job, we're there and we teach them and we engage them with our sports medicine program. So that's, that's no longer a new person is going to be as much of an issue. We have to constantly seek to create these narratives. Um, getting the leadership, they, we, they have an orientation leadership meeting for all new commanders that come in and we've worked it to where we are now in front of them. So as soon as they step onto base at Lackland that we are presenting, here's who we are, here's what we do. And it's not just us, but it's our whole team that's doing this together. Uh, it is a constant um, need to perpetually train and educate about who we are. And there's still gaps. There's still places to have improvement. Um, the relationship with the central medical hub, there's a little friction at times. And so it's about growth and communication and crafting relationships in every way. And, uh, it's, there's, there's always pains that come and go, uh, but it's a, it's been a, it's been a process, but it's always a process. It has to perpetuate. So. Jared, what did it look like interacting with the trainees and educating them on what you did and who you were? I mean, it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, cause as Dr. Fisher mentioned earlier, these individuals, you know, the, the eight to 900 individuals in that one building, they run the gamut from from chess club never ran a day in their life to you know had a shot at d1 football mm-hmm. and so some of them have seen athletic trainers and they know hey what the sports med clinic is about they're like hey i remember this from high school i need to investigate that because i have this issue and on the other hand some of you had to like educate and not just on what you do and why you do it but on the first on the, the purpose of what you're there for and how you plan to help them. You know, you see somebody limping across the track and you go to try to, Hey, can I help you out with this? You look like you're suffering a little bit. And they're like, no, don't touch me because I don't want to get recycled. I don't want my cycle and training to change. And so they, they fear the medical model because all they know about it is that if it doesn't work out for you, it's yeah, it's going to change your course of action. And so you'd have to sit here and say, okay, well, let's start with, I want you to graduate and I would prefer it to be on time. So if I can get you to come see me, I can try to do my things to help you graduate on time that together we could both meet the same goal. And it it goes back to that professional relationship that Dr. Fisher mentioned, you know, we, we got super, super, blessed again with the the first squadron we were in our first commander was a triathlete so colonel kenny was like oh 
sweet. I got my own sports med team in my own little office over there. <laughs> so that was an easy relationship to build. And then she helped us build the relationship with her, her group of MTIs. Mm-hmm. And when you got them on board, then they help you build the relationships with your trainees. And as he mentioned earlier too, that those guys are just going to get a new duty station. So you get a whole team of MTIs on board. And then one by one, week after week, they swap places with a new one. Mm-hmm. Or they have a student come in and replace them. And you're just like, oh, okay, new face. I have to come forward and introduce myself and start over and make that relationship. And it was the same with every trainee you get. You have to feel them out, figure out what their medical literacy is and, and where they where they kind of sit in understanding what's happening to them. And you have to make patient education a really big piece because a lot of. I think the the interesting thing and the really fun thing is thinking on the other side of it, of how many people you have now educated who are now trickling and floating within the Air Force of searching out athletic trainers actively. That is a, a big proponent. Patient education was probably our biggest focus. It was not, it was not, and I don't think it ever will be enough just to say, here's a band, go do these four-way exercises with your ankle mm-hmm. and you'll be good. Like you would literally have to sit down with this individual and say, this is what is going on. This is the physiology behind your problem. This is why we need to address A, B, and C. This is, I mean, with gait training, uh, the majority of injuries we saw were because people run like TV and try to punish Mother Earth. <laughs> so to get them back up and, you know, again, we got blessed enough to have the gait lab that we could record someone and say, this is how you run. This is how you run when you do it this way. Right. Which one of these ways do you think it's going to lead to you being injured? And, and so the education point was, was huge. Everything had to have a why. And once your patient understood the why behind the change, they were a lot more likely to go with it. And you could spend a lot less time trying to beat them over the head with the rubber band to, to try to get them to change. Thank you. So tell me a little bit more about the study. Reed, what were you guys actually looking at? Um, what were your outcomes in this study? Uh, so our, our biggest piece is, is the, the impact of uh, the cost for each one of these individuals. Uh, it took uh, the current data for 2020 is that it's about $25,000 worth of recruiting and prepar- preparing to get one of these individuals even to our front doors. And then over the eight weeks that they're here, it's another $25,000 worth of food, housing, keeping lights on, water running, covering the medical expenses, covering the instructors. And so each individual effectively is worth about $50,000. Um, and so attrition becomes one of our biggest benchmarks. To what extent do we have uh, separation in, in, in numbers that stems from um, – for whatever reason. And at the time uh, when we started this, muscle skeletal was about 50% of, of that loss. Um, so we sought to try to reduce that to the best of our ability. Uh, I think we kind of embedded it within Art and Jarrett's head that uh, each one of these trainees that didn't graduate, that separated, uh, was 
potentially reducing the likelihood that they would have a future job. So <laughs> uh, we looked good if we had better numbers. And so let's be mindful of what it takes to get those numbers. Uh, the next piece to that is this narrative of recycling. If somebody's pulled out of the fifth week of training because they're injured and not able to perform a PT test, uh, then they get set back to the third week and re, re, revisit life for three or two, like up to usually about two weeks. Um, well, it's again about $500 a day to manage that. So that's a, it's a chunk of change. Um, and then there's bits and pieces with, so on time graduations are kind of a, a huge component of it. And then it's, it's a lot of it beyond that, that, that I, the reason that folks and MTIs would fight for us to be there really gets into the simplification of what we do with them and for them. Uh, they're not medically trained individuals. Our, our training instructors would be from, again, all walks of life. They could have been loading boxes in a warehouse. They could have been uh, repairing airplanes. They could have been, I mean, there's so many different jobs that they come to where they pool in, and, uh, but none of it's, rarely is it ever medical in background. Yeah. So somebody complains of an ache, a pain, an ow, whatever, and now it's a stressor on them to manage that. And at this point now, they can call us and say, hey, can you see this person? And then we've got systems in place to go, yes, and I already have your entire week's schedule, so I see that you have an opening here, so I will take them at 10 o'clock on this day. And the, M the MTI is like, oh, cool, cool, let's do that. Yeah, I mean, they're just super... It, it, we just take a stress level off of them to be able to, which doesn't equate to financial outcomes, but it's it's building relationships that helps the system just get smoother. Like people fight for us at this point because they've bought into and have personally felt the impact that we have with them. That was a, a big piece of embedded is that we were downstairs. So not only could we see the schedule and find that spot at 10 o'clock in the morning that they didn't have anything else planned, but they didn't have to send the trainee anywhere. They didn't have to leave the building and sign out and walk a half a mile and get caught in the rain. Like literally we were just downstairs. And there's no delay time, yeah. which is a big issue with tradition, the traditional route is the delay. And then the, the further delay to physical therapy. Well, yeah. So we've got, it would take that individual plus a wingman because they're always in Paris and it would, they would have to transit the half mile over to the medical clinic, which is kind of a first come first serve in terms of getting in queue. And this is again from 6,000 people ish on base at a time. So all trainees from all squadrons are into the same pipeline. And so they would be taken out of, of care for, I don't know, five to seven hours, depending upon how long it took them to get cycled through that, that appointment. Uh, and we expedite that. We can just bypass a big chunk of that because we're taking care of the MSK and physical therapy. They're just, they don't, they're not staffed at levels that can support. Like they might see a physical therapist for reconditioning or rehab once a week if they make it to the point that they're in medical holdover waiting to, to return. And so that just wasn't really a viable option within the basic training setting. Uh, they're just not staffed enough to, to be able to support that and certainly not in the embedded nature. Uh, so there was a lot of, again, when, when there, we, we saw how they functioned in that original, there was a whole lot of uh, areas that we could cut and shorten that barrier to care. So that's why we were there. Yeah. From the army standpoint, we see that, that additional burden on having what we call your, your battle buddy have to go with you mm -hmm. 
and the time to go to to seek medical attention have been identified as barriers to seeking care. And y'all eliminated that, essentially. And one of the things, so when you look at, when everybody looks at the manuscript, initially you think the numbers, well, that's, that's pretty low, right? Um, in the, the control group, 1.25% of recruits were discharged. And then in your group, 0.94% of recruits were discharged. Even though these are really low numbers, this is huge impact. Tell us more about the impact. Um, so, so low numbers of percentages, but you're talking thirty-five thousand people a year. So, yeah. uh, so the the impact is, you know, a, a fraction of a percent is, is you have huge numbers, huge ends to play with. And again, where each of those were, were individuals is worth fifty thousand dollars, it adds up pretty quickly. Uh, save two in a year, and you've paid for your salary. Like it's not that hard. Um, uh, I, I'd say that we were constantly taught in in the beginning, especially by by uh, Dr. Cropper, that uh, one of the pieces that was going to sell this and make it work wasn't going to be the numbers. The numbers were going to whatever they were, they would be. However, the way you're going to get the attention of, of the commanders and the generals, the leadership to, to really prioritize this was to get the stories from the individuals. And so where you talk about impact of a 0.1%, the stories and the impact from each individual trainee that you work with and touch and help get through uh, is probably some of the most rewarding scenarios I've had in being in practice in that setting. Uh, you, you get a, I had a 33-year-old gentleman come through who uh, jobs had dried up in his town and there was no other real option. He had three kids at home and a wife, never been away from home. And this was his solution for a career to cover his family. He comes in with stress fractures, which is the story of every day for us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he's coming in in the third week of training and he's got upper grade three stress fractures developed. And we're like, okay, man, it's, he's pushed through it more than we wanted him to. You know, he breaks into tears when we say that he's going to be put on waiver and, and held back uh, in terms of, of his conditioning, but not pulled out of his training cycle. And uh, he's like, I've never been away from home. I can't be here any longer than I have to. I have to see my kids and my wife. And so it was just like huge connection to this person. Uh, and when he graduated on time, when he was, when he made it to his last PT test and tested on time, because we caught him early enough that we could intervene, like again, just wells up with tears. And this guy was like, "I'm going home. I'm good to see my family. I get to see them at graduation." Like it's, you know, I've I've helped kids get back in games. I've helped kids in championship games, and and it's it's cool and it's wonderful and it's great. Uh, but these are lives and uh, families, and I don't know. I think think that's just been a huge piece that speaks way beyond. A percentage point or a fraction of a percentage point. Um, but at the same time, my world is in every way looking at trying to dial in on those percentage points. There's a 25% reduction in their, their loss. And their loss is $20 million a year in terms of musculoskeletal. So I mean, we're talking, those, those are big numbers. So what can we do to kind of have an impact? And even fractions of a percent when you're talking millions of dollars is fractions of a million, which is something fun to play with. So, yeah, the big number, and you look at the percentages and you think, oh, not much, but $10 million. You yeah. guys saved the Air Force $10 million. Yeah. 
Jared, oh. congratulations. You saved the Air Force $10 million. What, what do you think was driving this? Well, it's, I don't know if I can speak directly to what's driving the $10 million piece, but once you help someone, just like with track or football or any other sport, when you work with somebody and they're super successful, well, they're going to tell their friend, like, hey, I went to go see the athletic trainer. They helped me get past my problem. And then that was had a super successful day on the field. Well, when now all of your athletes live in a little group of 50 and they literally sleep feet from each other, maybe now at six feet, but they literally were at that time before COVID, they were like bunks right next to each other. Well, they're like, Hey, there's this thing downstairs called the athletic training room. You should go check it out. They're not going to send you away. They're not going to recycle you. They're going to try to help you. And then, and then that that telephone game happens in that group of 50. And so, you know, a new flight comes in. They're in week one of training, and you see two. And then week two of training, you're going to see 10. And, and if it's a pretty rough flight, you may see 25 or 30 of the 50 by the time they graduate in week eight. And so if you if you do your job and create creating that education and that professional relationship with that indiv- that first individual, it just blows up from there. So how long did it take for it to go from two athletic trainers to more? Um, that story. Uh, so <laughs> with, with, with Nate, with Dr. Nye showing up with us at the same time, he had already, since he was tasked with creating sports med, he was like, I've worked with athletic trainers before and I want, I want some. And they said, okay. So they gave him a contract for four athletic trainers. When our grant got approved, uh, it was a research study that was comparing two in our one clinic within a squadron to two other control squadrons. And so we pushed his other four out into tech school and to support security forces and special warfare. Um, and so that one grew to six on, on the side and kind of the periphery of us until our study finished. And then as soon as the study finished, then those six got uh, kind of absorbed back into basic training to where they, and when the study finished, those six, that contract also absorbed Art and Jared to where it became eight. And so they had one athletic trainer per squadron. Uh, and so you imagine one person covering down on a thousand trainees. Um, so that was fatiguing to say the least. Um, about halfway through the study, we knew the data was looking good. So we had started pushing uh, the story and the narrative because we were trying to avoid the valley of death. That is the end of research to, to next implementation. Uh, so we started way early trying to speak those stories, share uh, training impact narratives, as well as our, our whopping 0.25% shift. Um, and, uh, and so I think that process, it took, I mean, from 2015 to the next contract really hit uh, in, in March of 2020 to where it went from the two, kind of sort of the eights, and then boom, we have 29 athletic trainers on base now. Uh, we're covering down two to two to four deep, depending upon the squadron and the time COVID hit. So we got a new squadron. And so we've had to absorb ways to handle it. So, um, I mean, about five, maybe six years in that time frame has gone from, 
a couple of people showing what they could do skill set wise to uh, this this massive endeavor that we have now. So it's amazing. So Jared, um, as we can wrap up, what was your what was the highlight for you for working in this population, this very unique population? I don't know. I think it comes down to training experiences. I mean, when you're working football or uh, uh, any other sport on the field, you you feel that connection with someone you've been working with finally returns. You know, you get an MCL injury that returns, and he has a heck of a game. And but on this side of things, uh, one lady that speaks out for, to me is somebody that, that my colleague Art worked with. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that. The U.S. military gives a very unique path to citizenship. So this is another piece of who you're dealing with in BMT. Uh, you have people coming from all walks of life, from other walks of life that you've never seen. We have Haitians coming in. We have people from Jamaica. We have people from the Horn of Africa, from the Cape coming in. And their, their sole purpose is to get citizenship. They're not looking to, to catch the, na- the next game winning receiving you know they're not looking for more yardage they're not trying to break a hundred they're looking for a new walk of life a path to american citizenship so art gets this young lady her mti brings her down and says hey she's struggling to keep up with the run she says her legs are hurting her art evaluates her and realizes that she has some biomechanical issues that are related to her gait so he teaches her to run differently and not only does she now run without pain and problems, she started improving. And she would come back to see Art just so, okay, well, how do I get to the next level of fast? And he would work with her some more. And by the time she graduated, not only did she graduate with honors, she graduated as the most improved runtime for her entire flight, female top honors for PT, and she got her American citizenship. And she brought her non-English speaking mother in to thank Art. <laughs> I mean, that stuff is awesome. Like, if, if that doesn't choke you up a little bit, you should check your pulse and take a look. It's, it is bigger than the numbers. It's amazing. What would you recommend to anybody who wants to go the route of athletic training in a military setting? Um, I think a, a, a Learn, learn what you're getting into. Um, so there, there's various ways to do this. Understand um, kind of the process and the hiring that exists. It's different between the branches. Um, contracting, GS positions, understanding these narratives. I think connecting with uh, the COPA's Armed Forces Committee is a great way to go. Uh, Andrew Mathis has got quite a bit of information that can help tie you into understanding and jumpstarting your 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 awareness of this process. Um, uh, I think seeking out ways to to get in and do some shadowing. There's ways to get folks on. Uh, COVID adds phenomenal barriers to all of this. Uh, so currently, we can't sponsor folks in to come watch and observe. Uh, you can find institutions like Incarnate Word uh, that are that have ties in. So our students do uh, rotations there now because we've maintained some of those relationships. 
um, I would guess UNLV kind of has some of those as well, where you have enough established relationships with that institution to be able to let students do their mentoring. Um, uh, definitely with the new Katie standards, doing your internship, your full-time internship, uh, if you can get in the door there, it's, it's great. Uh, so uh, the, the difficulty in doing this is getting the relationship established to where the paperwork is all signed ahead of you. The harder part is if I have a student who wants to come in and do this kind of work uh, within, within a month or three months even of when they would normally do it, like you need to find the institutions that are tied to them just because there's so many barriers and signatures that have to happen. Uh, so uh, it, it, it will significantly help. Once you're out and graduated and done, uh, understanding the process of where you're looking for jobs, looking for where the contracting jobs are going to post, understanding what you can and can't apply for as a GS, because a lot of those get restricted to certain populations. Uh, so there's just a, you need to learn and, and, and chat about the metrics. And so, I don't know, reaching out to folks like Jared and I, or, or probably even you, Kara, with, with all you do with Army, I think can give some understanding that's going to give uh, a jump start to that process. So. Thank you. Jared, any recommendations? I think just being comfortable, being uncomfortable, uh, because if you haven't done it before, it's different. And even in saying that, you know, from where we are at BMT, you, you can walk less than half a mile to another building where there's athletic trainers working with some of the same people from BMT. But what they're doing is very, very different in that building mm -hmm. uh, because their their mission set changes. You know, when it goes from basic military training to special warfare prep, the mission changes. It's different. And when those guys go across the street to special warfare schoolhouse, it changes again. Uh, and so every every military setting is different. And so I think that kind of goes back to understand what you're getting into. Uh, maybe if you don't understand what it means to work with a PJ, step one, what is a PJ? Figure that out. Uh, and then look at what they need because the needs for every military AT is different. Uh, security forces, you know, even when we went over to the combatives lab, this is literally one week post-graduation for BMT and the mission set changes. The same individuals that you had a week ago at BMT, but now everything is, everything is different. Oh, an alphabet soup. <laughs> yes. Acronyms galore and different terminology. It is a different culture. So be adaptable and don't, hesitate to pause and say, I have no idea what you just said. PJ, like I wore those when I woke up this morning. So <laughs> in, in, in every way, it's just, it's, it's, it's adaptability to, and then uh, um, seeking ways to improve yourself around the needs of the patients and the, and the stakeholders that you're working with. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you taking your time to talk with me today. Um, any last hints on where you guys are going from here, Reed? Wow. Uh, we have taken the gate conversation and grown it to where we gate train every single trainee that comes into base. So we teach 800 people a week how to run. Um, so there's, I mean, data galore when when we get to play with that kind of stuff. So there will be more coming from our impact. Um, athletic training is great. Athletic trainers working within team functions is even better. So now that we have our 29, we've also got strength and conditioning and nutritionists on board and four sports med docs now. And our, our, our 
small percentage points have gone from that 1.25. And I think we're dialing it in at like 0.6 right now. So I think we've about cut attrition for MSK in half. Uh, so, I mean, the things that we're doing with this constant narrative of process improvement, it's, it's that growth model. Like there's more we can squeak out. So what's the next challenge? Where's the next gap? Where's the next hole that we can kind of continue to optimize what we're offering as a profession uh, as we lead kind of this innovation of sports med with what they do. So it's, it's this, but more and this, but more involved. And it comes from peeling back layers and saying, cool, what's next? Cool. What's next? Cool. What's next? Thank you guys. And again, thank you for taking your time to talk with me today and even more so Thank you for being such wonderful representations of our profession to the Air Force because they have completely bought on now. And that's yeah. amazing to see the opportunities that have grown out of this first endeavor. And I look forward to seeing the future research coming out of your lab. Thank you guys again so very much, Dr. Fisher and Mr. Spring. And thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks for having us on.